Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. We are absolutely thrilled to be with you today. And before we begin uh, with some very exciting stuff, I wanted to mention our new seminar series that is being put up. Uh, with none other than Dr. John Lennox, world-renowned apologist. Uh, you can find that on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, so be sure to check that out. Dr. Woodward, I bet you're excited about this seminar series. I mean, God is doing something monumental here. I think it's amazing. But uh, but I, I think I'm going to head in a slightly different direction. It's kind of in a direction that is relevant to the Book of Acts, because in a small group I'm leading at our church, I'm excited to be diving in. We've been into Acts 1 and 2. But when you get into the book of Acts, it's the expansion of, of the gospel message. The, literally, the kingdom of God is just exploding across the Roman Empire in the direction of Rome in the book of Acts. But you see these testimonies. People have seen, they've witnessed Christ. They've been changed by Christ. And Paul, of course, his first of three testimonies uh, just comes into the plot big time. It just is a pops right there in, in chapter 9, and then twice later, after chapter 20, twice more, he gives his testimony. And it's just really amazing how powerful a testimony is as part of the apologetics picture. And I, I sometimes think that we, and I, I in particular, lose sight of the power of an eyewitness, you, the Christian, who has been changed, you, the believer in Jesus, who has had your life transformed, you, the one who had doubts, and now you, you find checking out your doubts, there's a firm foundation for your faith. Yes, faith is faith. We trust in the one that is unseen at this moment. Jesus is not here and on earth. But we know by, by the solidity of other eyewitnesses then we can put our faith and then we become a new eyewitness. It's pretty exciting, don't you think, Nick? Oh, absolutely. And we're actually going through uh, Acts at my church as well. Our pastor's been in it for the last year or so. Wow. But that's rich, a rich journey through the Bible. In the oh, book yeah. Of Acts. yeah. So I would like to share, and I haven't done it that often. As a matter of fact, if we look back over the last 15 years that we've been on air, I'm not sure if I'd show you how often I've even gone through my own story of being a doubter, being a borderline atheist. I was an agnostic at age 17 hid it from my parents, and um, didn't really want to talk in our little church group that we had going, and we had a youth group, and I was the vice president of the youth group, and I was an agnostic. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and I'll bet that's, that kind of situation is not all that rare. I'll bet you there are a lot of youth church, youth leaders, who are in their high school, you know, exposure to other worldviews and the science classes and People in like philosophy or the fine arts, even especially today, are often just uh, beginning with like, okay, we can reject Christianity first thing. Okay, that's our job one. Okay, now now that we've put that off the the chart uh, of consideration and just kind of shoved it into the dumpster of history, 
Now, what else can we believe? What else can we give our life to uh, that's, that's really relevant and true? And so I think that, you know, to, to share my struggle and before I ever became an apologist, before I ever in, entered into chronicling the, the debate between Darwin and design, I think that's relevant. So I'm going to jump in at age one. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going to jump in at about <laughs> age 16 and share my story. Are we, are we good to go? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, I was raised in a Protestant home. Uh, we actually were going to uh, various churches. Uh, the United Church of Christ um, is kind of a conglomerate um, formation of several denominations, congregational church and others that came together in the early 60s with that new name, United Church of Christ. We had been Presbyterians before that. My three older brothers and I, we were all raised in the church, went every week virtually. My dad had been an elder in the Presbyterian Church. And so we were taught, as far as the belief system, to honor the Bible. But we never really studied it in our church at all. We never really studied it ever, um, in our, other than maybe a little bit in Sunday school class. And the preaching at our church had a little bit of the Bible. But I became skeptical of the Bible by the time I was about 20 years old, excuse me, before that, by the time I was 17, and it grew in, in that period following that. And I, I was just a dogged but fairly quiet skeptic. Sometimes my skepticism would center on miracles. I just considered miracles can't happen. After all, I'm following this new thing called space exploration, first through science fiction, the, the works of Heinlein and Arthur Clarke and other pioneers of the, the world of science fiction. I was just, in, just inhaling them. And then I would go across the, the hall, as it were, into the science classroom of our high school and learn about chemistry, biology, and the coolest area of physics. And as I learned about how the universe was put together by evolution in my classes and how it just kind of evolved and expanded over time, after this kind of God-absent Big Bang version that was taught in our high school, I thought, wow, we've explained everything. Everything works by mechanical, predictable laws of physics and chemistry. There's no place for God in this equation. He is just, you no, know, imaginary. Although Jesus obviously was real, but I just thought he was a good teacher. And I imagine, Nick, that you've heard of people, maybe you were that way before Christ. You just looked at Jesus as another good teacher, another wise man. And, and so that's the, that was the approach that I took. And so I basically was um, kind of moving quietly out of the, the arena of Christian faith and exploring a little bit. And when I finally got to college, I was admitted in the fall of 68 uh, to, to Princeton and my three older brothers had gone there as well, and they had also quietly dropped their, you know, Protestant Christian faith, in whatever they may have had, either in high school, my, my oldest brother, but the other two as they entered the university, and we didn't really tell our parents much about it. So we would still go to church with them when we came home, but we were practicing agnostics. I think that's very common for people in the last 40, 50, 60 years of American life is when you go to college, you know, you grow up. And by the way, you grow up out of this Christian thing. Well, it was uh, at Princeton that I heard a group was on campus that had a, a fervent desire to study the Bible. They're now called the Princeton Christian Fellowship. They've been up and running for about 100 years now. 
but when I was there, um, they just uh, were, were kind of a smaller group, but they had a, a fall Bible conference where they bring in a guest speaker. What really rankled me and got me kind of perturbed about this group, one of my friends was going to their meetings, is I heard that they had these uh, special presentations of evidence for creation. I thought, evidence? This for creation and conflicts with evolutionary theory? Well, evolution may be theory, but it's also a fact, I told my friend at dinner, and that's crazy. I mean, how at a you know university like this one would you have anybody coming out presenting something that doesn't exist? I mean, this is, this is bogus. This isn't good education. So I felt it was my duty to kind of like, you know, help educationally assist these, you know, deluded dear, dear friends of mine uh, attending this Christian group to realize that they were on the wrong side of the, of the street in terms of evidence. So I, I went out to the fall conference, met the founder of the group who was in his late 70s at that time, Dr. Donald Fullerton. And, uh, and I, when I was standing there, I said, is it true? After the meeting, they had a guest speaker, and I was introduced to Dr. Fullerton, the, who ran the organization. Is it true you embrace this, this creation perspective and you oppose evolution? He said, well, that's true. We could discuss that. But let me ask you a question. And I said, well, sure. He says, do you know that you and I are sinners before a righteous and holy God? I mean, Nick, he didn't waste any time getting around to the key issue. No, apparently not. <laughs> so I said, uh, yeah, I think in Sunday school class at my church I heard about that. He says, do you know what the wages of sin is? And I'm clueless. I'm deer in the headlamps. I said, uh, no. He said, well, the, according to Romans, the wages of sin, of, sin, of uh, a rebellious heart going our own way, um, straying from God, the wages is death, which means spiritual separation from God. If you were to cut a flower at its stem, uh, you would actually see that that flower, over time, over the hours and days, uh, it's going to shrivel to nothing because it's separated from its source of life. And we're like that. We are separated from God by our sin, but he loves us so much, he wants us to bring back in fellowship. Let's go discuss this at my apartment. And when he asked me this, it was like maybe 9, 9.15 at night, and I thought, yeah, I've got time. I don't have any big class um, reading I have to do for tomorrow. So I jumped in his car, we dropped off the guest speaker at the train station in Princeton, and we went over to his apartment, and we began, I actually had another friend who was in the group who was uh, with us, and we began a tennis match at his apartment. When I say tennis match, I would lobby a ball, evidence for Darwin, um, evidence for evolution from the fossil record, and he would answer that really quickly. Well, the fossil evidence is really not that good, and we can go into that, but have you heard about Isaiah 53? So he would hit the ball back to me, and I would say, and he would maybe op open up the Bible, and all of we, have, like sheep have gone astray, everyone has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting and a little bit weird. And then I said, well, no, I haven't heard about that. But have you heard about natural selection? So I would hit the ball back. And he would say, yeah, natural selection really can't accomplish much. And he would give a quick answer. But he said, have you heard about, you know, Psalm 16, the prophecy of Jesus' resurrection from the Old Testament? So he would hit the ball back. <laughs> and so we hit this slow-motion tennis match for probably an hour and a half. I was hitting wow. with everything I had from science. He was coming back with everything he had from the Bible and fulfilled prophecy. 
and the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and on and on, and the, the powerful love of God from John chapter 3, and other places, John, uh, you know, uh, chapter 10, I give them eternal life, they shall never perish. And I was just stymied. I wasn't making any headway. And he said, and it was close to midnight. It was actually maybe closer to 1 a.m. So we'd argued for about two hours, a little over two hours by that time. He said, well, let's, I said, uh, this, I don't think we're really you know, making much headway. He said, well, let's come back tomorrow. And my friend who was with me, he shook his head, yeah, that's a good idea. And I said, well, okay. And so I walked back. And as I went through the crunchy, snow-covered ground, toward the most famous place on the Princeton campus, Blair Arch. We were literally just about, you know, a couple hundred yards from Blair Arch, and I took a look at my friend, Ralph MacArthur. I said, you believe in miracles? He said, I sure do. I said, you believe that God could take, and I just kind of held up my hand in the air as if I had one in my hand. God could take a toothpick, and he could command that toothpick to, to suddenly turn into the Golden Gate Bridge. You thinking that God can do that? And he looked at me and said, yeah, if God wanted to take a toothpick and command it to become the Golden Gate Bridge, he could do that. And I looked at him and I just shook my head as if to say, I can't believe that you can think there's a God who can bring in new matter and new structure, you know, and energy to do all that instantaneously. And I just thought, you know, I'm just looking, I, I thought I'm, I'm looking at a Martian. <laughs> I'm looking at somebody from another realm of reality. <laughs> and so, and this kid was a valedictorian of his high school class. So, you know, he was a strong, you know, smart, smart young man, uh, an engineering major there at Princeton. So I thought, wow. So I just went back to my room. Um, I went back to Dr. Fullerton's the next day. We argued for another hour and a half. And uh, I just did two of us. And I basically, after that, I, I, I was worn down. I, I didn't really believe what he was presenting, but I said, I want to get out of here. I don't want to just walk out on him. I said, uh, so I blurted out a prayer, oh, God, help me. And I didn't really believe in God still. And he said, well, let me lead you in prayer. So he led me in a sinner's prayer, which I, I mouthed, you know, repeated sentence by sentence, but I didn't really mean it in my heart. And he said, well, that's great. You've made your decision. Here's some follow-up materials. He handed me a booklet. And he said, let's meet when you get back from, from Christmas break. I said, well, we'll talk about it. So I, I bolted out of there as fast as a jackrabbit and went back to my room, packed my, my belongings to go back to central Ohio from Columbus area where I'm from, and I never thought about it much, but I did ask my brother Bill, an atheist, what can I say to get these Christians off my back? I mean, what can I say to them? And as he said, well, yeah, he says, if you're still an atheist like I am, you know, just ask them if they're absolutist. I said, absolutist? And he said, yes, just use this term, absolutism, because they're unwilling to commit to, or to consider anything outside their little realm of teaching. I said, so how do I say this? So he coached me on what to say. So when I, I came back in January for the new semester of Princeton, Dr. Fullerton called me up, invited me to dinner, and said, let's start a Bible study. I said, Dr. Fullerton, are you an absolutist? There was a long, long you know, silence at the other end of the line. Am I a what? Are you an absolutist? Are you unwilling to commit to consider that others' views might be might be right and that your view might be wrong? He said, where did you get this from? I'm sorry, I'm not following. I said, well, I think I'm going to go my own route. You can go your path, I'll go my path. And so I'm sure he was saddened 
you know, he was perplexed, and I was just relieved that I didn't have to follow through on something I didn't commit to. So for that next couple of weeks, as I prepared for my fall semester finals, they, they had a weird pattern where you actually took your final exams in January. Um, so I pre was prepping for my fall, and every time I looked up from my prep, I kept thinking, I don't know what happens when I die. I have no assurance about you know eternity. So I basically, uh, during that period of about two or three weeks, was was experiencing what the existential philosophers call angst, or angst, if you want to use the Midwestern American pronunciation. But the Germans pronounce the word angst, A-N-G-S-T, and it means anxiety about one's future being so radically uncertain. Anxiety about one's own future being radically uncertain because I had no assurance as to what would happen to me when I die. And I thought, well, Dr. Fullerton was presenting one view. Maybe I should visit this atheist philosopher on campus, Dr. Walter Kaufman, who my brother Bill prays to the hilt. He knows everything about Nietzsche. Well, maybe Nietzsche has the answer. So, Nick, do you think that would have been a good route for me to go to check out Nietzsche? He has the answers. Uh, not if you don't want to go crazy at the end yeah, of your that's life. Right. Yes, Nietzsche went insane in the latter part of his life. Um, I think syphilis had a part to do with that. But, well, I know. I didn't, actually, I wound up taking the course with Walter Kaufman six months later, and that was as a new baby Christian. I'm jumping a little bit further down my story. But let me just say that I actually um, contacted a young man and who was helping Dr. Fullerton to lead Bible studies one-on-one, -on -one, and we call them a personal hour. Uh, the Princeton Fellowship to this day has them, and hundreds of students have, have actually engaged in personal hours. And so I actually contacted Bill Fay, uh, now serving the Lord uh, from um, Pennsylvania as his uh, place of uh, ministry. And actually, as I was w uh, working on this, the the whole process of thinking out about my own future. I, I contacted Bill Fay. He said, I can come to your room once a week. We picked a, a time slot, and he shared once a week, starting in February, the, the Word of God and his personal testimony. And I listened, and I, and I thought, and I pondered, and I listened some more. And as he shared the Book of Romans, uh, put pieces that relate to the assurance we can have in Christ, as he shared his own turning to Christ at Princeton. It was Bill Fay's slow, gentle leading through that one-on-one -on -one Bible study, which, by the way, I never prepped for. I never did the homework. But I welcomed him into my room at Witherspoon Hall every, I think it was maybe Tuesday morning. And so as we met one hour a week, I gradually began to thaw, like a glacier begins to thaw in the noonday sun. And my heart was beginning to warm up. I even bumped into Dr. Fullerton while playing Frisbee football out in the green in front of our dorm. And, and I looked up as I picked up the Frisbee off the ground uh, to throw it back to my friends. And there was Dr. Fullerton in his black suit and tie. I said, well, hello, Dr. Fullerton. He said, hello, I hear you're meeting with Bill Fay. I said, yes, I'm having a wonderful time. I said, I think I even believe in Jesus' miracles, but I don't believe in the resurrection. He says, why not? I said, well, that's just, you know, I, I think that's just incredible. He says, well, if God has the power to heal somebody, to do a physical miracle, why would God not also have the power to raise his son from the dead? And when he asked that question, I looked with, Lynn, you know, again, deer in the headlamps, kind of blank stare. I said, well, 
um, I don't know. And so I, that got me thinking again. That was probably in April. But in the first week of May, last day of school, right around exam time, Bill Faylet said, let's meet at my apartment. So I went down to 24 Moore Street, just about two blocks away from Firestone Library on the campus. And I met with him that evening. We had a wonderful time of, of uh, instruction and reminders, and he reviewed the gospel. He said, and if you look at a chair and just think the chair can hold you up, that's mental faith. The true faith is walking over to the chair and putting your rest in it. And Christ died for you, all of your sins, past, present, future, and he rose again. And it's Christ alone who can give you the assurance of a personal relationship that goes forever. And I looked at him and I thought, you know, I think the time has come to make a decision. I said, do I have to make this decision now here in front of you? He said, no, you can make it privately. You can go into your room back at the campus and do it privately. But let me know if you make that decision. I said, I might as well get it over with now. I'm going to do it sooner or later. Let's just go ahead and do it now. And this time I bowed in prayer and I turned to Christ. It was almost like I was in a dark room. Someone had grabbed my shoulders and turned me around. And there in this dark like gymnasium, there was the lighted, the lit figure of Christ inviting me over. And it was almost like I realized I just needed to go to him. I needed to just walk over and embrace him. And so that wasn't like, you know, I had a vision like that, but, it, it, you know, if you can picture something, Nick, in your mind, that's what it was like, is that this, it's, mm -hmm. it's Christ and Christ alone. And so as I looked, as I, as I looked at, at, at the situation, I said, let's do it now. So I uttered a, a simple but sincere prayer. I'm a sinner, but I believe, Lord, that you died for me and rose again, and so I received the gift of eternal life. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dying for me and rising again. And when I did that, it was like it was a Copernican revolution. I realized for the first time I had no angst. I had no anxiety about my future. I knew if I were to die, I would be in heaven instantly, not because of any good thing that I had done, but because of what Christ had done for me. And so as I, as I left the apartment that night, I was thinking, you know, I just want to just do another prayer. And I said, dear Lord, you know, I thank you so much that I made this decision, but, you know, these guys believe in creation here, this Christian group, so if it's okay, I really don't want to hang out with them. <laughs> so... <laughs> and when I think of that, of that being my first baby Christian prayer after I'm accepting the, God, the gift of eternal life, I can imagine God just roaring from heaven with humor and just saying, ha, 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 permission denied. And literally <laughs> one, one, about, uh, one, day after, one or two days after that, Dr. Fullerton reached out, and that whole issue had faded to the back. I accepted his dinner invitation six months late, and I, he began to disciple me, and I became a missionary to those who have similar doubts. So that's my story. Wow. It's true. I'm sticking with it. Back to you, Nick. Thanks for the opportunity to share. Well, thank you for sharing. That is an example of one of so many of how God will take us, even when we are unwilling. Uh, he is still willing to draw us in and to save us from our sin. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. And if you have any questions or comments, send us an email at information at apologetics.org. We'll see you back here next week.
You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door. Thank you.